This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin, a book covering an inner journey to optimal performance, how to find that nice inner flow, how to learn, of course, the art of learning, uh, how, how basically to get better at anything and, uh, and, and really pick things apart to, uh, to constantly be one of those, uh, one of those perpetual learners that, uh, that we all want to be. So very good book. Eric, go ahead and fill us in on who recommended the book and a little bit about the author. Yeah, and uh, if it's your first time joining us, we all of our books this year were suggested or and or recommended in Tools of Titans by Tim Tim Ferriss. Uh, he interviewed a number of people for the book, did podcast with them really, and then and then put it all into a book format. So the person who was the one who who uh, who recommended this book was Brian Callen. That's BrianCallen.com. Brian with a Y and Callen with two L's. He's a comic and actor, and he performs stand up. It's a C also, with two L's too, right? Yeah. Yeah, could, yeah. Could yeah. theoretically be a K. Yeah. He, uh, he hosts a top podcast called The Fighter and the Kid. And he had an excellent quote in Tools of Titans that I've, I've thought a lot about over the last year since I first read the book. And it's this. Happiness is wanting what you have. That's pretty good. It's just a really neat way of, of, uh, of thinking of that because it's pretty easy to not be satisfied with what you have and, and always be <laughs> looking for something else. And it just kind of helps you to take a step back and happiness is happy is wanting what you have. Now, who is this Josh Waitskin who has the title, the art of learning it seems rather bold, right? So who is this guy? Well, he's a chess, chess prodigy, a world champion. He started at the age of six. If you're familiar with a movie called searching for Bobby Fisher, he is the basis for that movie. His his father based on the book written by his father, right? Yeah, yep. Uh, now, uh, now he's a Tai Chi world champion. So chess prodigy as a as a child, and in his later years, uh, Tai Chi world champion. So has experience in uh, in mastering and in learning a uh, number of different different things, and and he goes through a lot of that in this in this book. And I'll be honest, I'll he, be honest. When I saw Tai Chi World Champion at first, I wasn't exactly sure what that meant because I was just imagining that that meant um, basically doing what I'd seen like people do in parks and so on, yeah. uh, and then getting graded really well for form. So thinking of it as something along the lines of uh, like figure skating for people doing doing movements really slowly and with a lot of attention and thinking you know if i were going to be a world champion in something it wouldn't be that and as it turns out i didn't really know i didn't really know anything about tai chi or about the martial form of tai chi uh which is a totally different thing and uh so so some of you out there might you, you probably know more about this than i did but apparently this is a, a legit like pretty awesome actually from what it sounds like in the book uh, martial art and um yeah so good good for that it's it's not just uh you know getting graded on uh being able to do slow movements awesomely 
Yeah, and, and we'll talk more about it because one of the things that stuck out to me the most in the book was was about Tai Chi. But uh, he described some of his, his big fights, and, of, of course, they were put on video. And so uh, as I was reading this book, I, I would pull up YouTube and I would, I would watch some of those fights. And it, it, it is really weird. It's uh, Tai Chi because the guys are just kind of – they're almost like holding each other. I mean, it's almost like a, a wrestling type of dance. And then all of a sudden – in, well, you don't you don't really think anything's happening, and then all of a sudden, one guy will just go flying, and, and you're and you're like, what the heck just happened? Uh, but that that's kind of you're, you're using the opponent's natural movements to to take advantage of that, and and just you, you can end up like flinging the person across the uh, the mat. But uh, but it, yeah, if if you've never seen it. it uh, do a search for that, and, and maybe search for uh, Josh. Well, Josh. Why don't we just put Josh's a couple? Uh, a couple. We'll put a, we'll put a couple links to those uh, those videos in the show notes. Yeah, that'll yeah. that'll definitely uh, definitely help us out. But yeah, it does look. I mean, the 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 uh, which is the free, um, uh, uh, the 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 free footed one or the 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 open 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 feet one where you're allowed to move your feet just looks like. It looks a lot like Greco-Roman wrestling. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of it's a grappling sport without a doubt. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a different a different thing, but it's it's kind of a cool combat sport. So uh, uh, yeah, I learned a lot about that just in reading the book. Yeah. Yep. Josh rarely gives interviews. In fact, this was only the second interview he's ever given. He's known for trying trying to keep things clear in terms of phone calls and everything just so that he can really focus on his, his creative side. He's highlighted in the books, book uh, Tools of Titans as well. And I wanted to read the last part of his section, which I, th- I thought was excellent. And it's the importance of language on a rainy day. So this is Tim Ferriss quoting, quoting Josh. One of the biggest mistakes that I observed in the first year of Jack's life was parents who have unproductive language around weather being good or bad. Whenever it was raining, you'd hear mom's babysitter's dad say, oh, it's bad weather. We, we can't go out. Or if it wasn't, it's good weather. We can go out. That means that somehow we're externally reliant on conditions being perfect in order to be able to go out and have a good time. So Jack and I never missed a single storm, rain or snow, to go outside and romp in it. Maybe we missed one when he was sick. We've developed this language around how beautiful it is. Now, whenever it is rainy, a rainy day, Jack says, look, Dad, it's such a beautiful rainy day, and we go out and we play in it. And I wanted him to have this internal locus of control, to not be reliant on external conditions being just so. Yeah, I love that. that, that was, I remember that actually in the uh, podcast interview and just how yep. that, that really struck me as something that is very much up my, my alley of how I, I like to think. And, and uh, it's no wonder that he's been so successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, and, and it's one of those things I'm grateful that like my wife's parents, my wife's dad in particular, like when, it's, when it storms, she just wants to go out and like watch the lightning. Right. Wow. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a cool event. Like it's not, Oh, well, you know, it's like, Oh, wait, it's storming. We can watch the lightning and then we can take a nap or, you know, do something <laughs> else, you know, like find some way to take advantage of this. And that, that's the, exactly the kind of um, mentality that I think is, uh, it, again, I, I love that quote too. Yeah. Uh, what he does now is that he's a coach for top athletes and investors. 
So we'll move on to our overview and initial reactions of the book. Jason, you want to start this part out? Yeah. Uh, one thing, just initial reactions. This book made me want to play chess uh, more seriously again, for sure. Uh, <laughs> just his talking about it and all that, partly because his sort of instinctual style was very similar to mine. I mean, I, I played competitive chess for a while, uh, was obviously never at, at the level that he reached. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I did beat one of the kids on our high school chess team when I was playing on that uh, blindfolded uh, years ago. So, uh, and he went on actually to become a pretty good chess player, uh, after that, uh, fun event. But, um, uh, but yeah, that, uh, uh it made me want to go back and, and sort of dust off the old, uh, the old chess board and, and scrape off some rust on my, on my own chess game. Maybe get a couple friends of mine uh, who I also know are, are good players to do some online ch chess or something. Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, but the other thing is that I, I really thought this was a great coaching and teaching manual as well as being an excellent resource for those who want to be high performers themselves. So there's a lot in here about here's how you should think, here's how you should go about making sure that you go through the learning process and all that. Yeah, there's a lot of that. But there's also a lot of critiques of his prior coaches in certain places, uh, pray, you know, effusive praise of a few of the coaches that he had, you know, less, uh, a little bit more uh, critique of certain other coaches who, who didn't in his view, uh, foster his uh, foster him to become uh, better because of the way that they they went about things. I just thought a lot of the pedagogical discussion and the ways of of making sure that people are learning uh, in the most efficient ways. I thought a lot of that was really um, was really useful, and uh, and it's the sort of thing. Actually, I've got I've got some friends in coaching that I'm 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 going to buy this book for them. Uh, mm -hmm. Some friends that are that are uh, coaches in, in college football and elsewhere. Uh, that I'm gonna have them. I'm gonna have them read this. And actually, this is one of those books. I'm gonna have some of my players in the future. This will be a book that I'll give to some players, and so on. Uh, that I coach, and and probably some. I'll, I'll recommend it to some students as well here and there, uh, because I, I think this is a very this is a very helpful book. One of those books that it it doesn't. You know, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty wary of quote unquote self help stuff. Uh, and mm -hmm. some of the books that we've read over the course of this year would fall under that category. And this one, you know, in some sense has a little bit of that uh, in there, but it's way more than that. It's, it, it is help yourself, but it's, it's more about learn how the mind works and here's how things work in order to be the best you can be. Uh, and it's, and it's very much resistant to the kind of snake oil salesman approach that a lot of, uh, a lot of those things take and uh, it's very, very feet on the ground um, uh, approach to things that, that really resonated with me. And I think uh, had, had a lot, uh, has a lot to contribute for, uh, for just about anybody, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the back of the book does say self-help. That's the main category of the book. But you're right. It is, it is more about um, I, it's psychology. I, I saying, you know, it's... It, how to learn in, in a lot of ways and how to, how to start, how to start in the right place with learning. Right. Uh, yeah. But, and, and, and beyond the usual, well, learn to ask the right questions. No, mm -hmm. no, it's not just that. It's not that simple, right? It, it's more about there are certain processes that if you, if you circumvent those processes, then you're hamstringing your ability to really get deep learning, which is what he's really about here. Mm-hmm. And uh, book seven, we we read Outliers and that discussed the 10,000-hour rule. One thought I kept having in this 
book is uh, this this should be if you read outliers you should read this one right after because this this should be the follow-up handbook on how best to use those 10,000 hours yeah this is a handbook a good way to think about it uh, is is uh, Anders Ericsson who who is the uh, researcher at Florida State go Knowles uh, who uh, uh, who who on whose uh, studies uh, Gladwell built that 10,000 hour rule chapter as we dis we discussed in that podcast and uh, Erickson didn't emphasize the 10,000 hour rule like uh, like Gladwell did Gladwell you know focused more on that Erickson really wanted to focus on that's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice which yeah. he defined very carefully as a, a, a very uh, very a very careful way of going about learning movements, learning patterns, you know, breaking things down and, and, and not, you, you don't just go out and play pickup basketball for 10,000 hours and get men make the NBA. It takes deliberate practice to get good at specific skills that then build on each other and so on. This, I think the best way to describe this book, I, I think you just nailed it, is this is the manual for how to do deliberate practice well, mm -hmm. right? And that, that's in any field. This is, I, I, you're right. This pairs perfectly with that book. It is the manual for deliberate practice. And to the point where you probably won't need 10,000 hours if you apply a lot of these principles in how you, how you go about that practice. Right, right. And, and that's where, you know, again, this is where Tim Ferriss talks a lot about how, well, you know, you don't, yeah, you might need 10,000 hours to become, you know, in the top half of 1% of people in the world to do something, but you can, you can get, you, you can be in the top, uh, top 5% or top 3% with, you know, maybe 500 hours if you do mm -hmm. it right. And, and this is, or even a hundred in some cases, this is that manual of how to do it right. Uh, mm -hmm. very much. So it's, it's one that I, I, again, I think is, uh, it's, this also is, this is one of those books. And I think maybe here at the end of the year, we should do a little bit of a ranking on, um, on what books fit for like, for kids, say grade school kids, there's a number of these books that are worth grade school kids reading because yeah. it, it's, it, it's the sort of thing that I wish I'd read when I was that age. Yeah. And there are a few, of the, I mean, cause I learned a lot of these lessons that are in, that, that are in this book, but being able to digest that and break that down. If I was like seven, this would be a great book for like a seven or an eight year old for a bit of a precocious, precocious seven or eight year old to read, to learn like, Oh, this is how things work in terms of how I should think about learning and how I should think about like, I want to be good at this. This is how this happens. Well, and I, th I, I thought that was really cool too, because he was six years old when he started and he started on the, the streets of Manhattan. He would, he would go down to the park to play adults at, at chess and he's, he's six years old and, and he, these guys are really good, but he, he would beat them a lot of the times. And so, you know, this, this young little kid, but yeah, I can't imagine reading this as a, as a seven or eight year old. Like oh wow here's a here's a six year old who's going and playing playing guys in the park and he's street hustlers them. baby he's, yeah uh, so that that was pretty cool too but yeah that that's a that's a neat thought to uh, to recommend this one to to younger kids as well because he he talks a lot about his childhood and and you know, if the kids are that same age while they're reading it I think they'd really enjoy enjoy hearing about that yeah yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and get to favorite quotes. Uh, since I have more, as is often the case, I'm going to go ahead first here. <laughs> um, there, the, and a number of mine kind of cluster together. Uh, so 
one of the things that uh, that that stuck out a few, in a few different places was he 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 liked this uh, or he emphasized this 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 distinction between greatness and being good and and all these other things. So there are a couple of quotes that that I want to lump together there uh, here at the beginning. And he said, uh, first of all, I've come to understand that the distance between winning and losing is minute and therefore or, and moreover, that there are that there are ways to steal wins from the maw of defeat. So the margin between winning and losing is often so tiny. And so, you know, he, he that's one of the things that he emphasizes throughout this book is understanding that you're so often walking that razor edge anytime you're involved in competition learning certain little hacks and tricks to make sure that you're going about it the right way puts you in an advantageous position when things get really close when it's at the margin you're more likely to get there so that's one uh but at the, at the same time and this is where the other the other couple quotes that i've got in here uh parallel with that the difference he says the difference between numbers three and one is mountainous so that's the paradox here, right? The difference between winning and losing, the distance between winning and losing is minute. Razor 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 thin edges. But the difference between three number being number 3 and being number 1 is mountainous because improvement and and uh getting good at something is asymptotic effectively. It's easy to improve early in the process but as you become world class the better and better you get the less margin there is or the, the less the, the the less easily it you, uh the getting better becomes and so now you know the 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 distance just to make that little incremental difference between that that razor sharp that razor thin edge that would get you to be to go from being number three to being the very best that becomes really big even though, yeah, the margin's small, but the amount of effort and careful planning and deliberate practice to get there is uh, is, is significant. And so, uh, so that that was that was one. Those are two quotes that went together for me. My first quote: "The real art in learning takes place as we move beyond proficiency, when our work becomes an expression of our essence." And that you you have no more comments on that. You're going to let it stand for itself. I'm I'm gonna leave it. I I keep thinking of a book I just read, uh, The War of Art, and that that plays in, in a lot of, into this uh, this quote. But um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, maybe we can do, uh, <laughs> unpack it a little more when once we, we get to the War book. of Art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So uh, another one uh, that that kind of dovetails in with the other two that I just uh, read at the beginning. There are clear distinctions between what it takes to be decent, what it takes to be great, and what it takes to be among the best. So that again gets back to the distance, the difference between three and one is mountainous. There's also clear tiers, right? To be decent, there's certain things you can you can do. And as he puts it, you know, you, you, you have a lot of margin when you're when you when you just want to be decent. Then the margin shrinks when it, when you want to be great. And then that gets even thinner. Like you have to do that much more when it be, when it, and you have to do things differently when it comes to be, when it, uh, to be among the best. And actually this ties into an article that, uh, I've used when I've, when I taught sociology of sport that, uh, the, a number of athletes who took that class 
just expressed how much they they loved that academic article, which how often do you get students that are like, man, this academic article is like really useful for my life. Uh, it was an article by um, what, what, what's his what's his name? Um, uh, Daniel Chambliss called the mundanity of excellence. And we'll 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 put a, a link up to it in the uh, in the show notes, but definitely worth a look in 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 in, uh, in combination with this particular book. Uh, what he does is, is, is that sociologist embedded himself with a with a group of swimmers and observed the differences between the swimmers who were competitive at like the local level, swimmers who were competitive at, you know, like the regional or national level and then elite like world class swimmers. And what were the differences in terms of how they trained, how they lived, what they did? And it was really clear that he said, actually, not Waitskin says there are clear distinctions there. What, what what that article does is it spells out what those distinctions were for those athletes. And as it turns out, it was not actually quantity of practice as much as it was the nature of practice and uh, and 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 quality and particularly the uh, the the way that practice was approached and thought about was the biggest difference in terms of the very elites from everyone else. And this book actually gets right to a lot of the stuff that that book ends up or that 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 article ends up talking about. And that also feeds right into Anders Ericsson's work uh, as well. So all of that stuff goes together uh, as the sort of thing that uh, that that, you know, kind of works as a a nice a nice piece together. What it makes me think of of. uh of learning as well, not just, you know, like not just practicing for a, a sport, uh, but, but learning, you think, you think of the contrast between someone who just kind of crams the night before an exam <laughs> yeah, and, and just kind of hopes for the best, you know, stays up all night, hopes for the best as opposed to someone who, who does deliberate study and it does the right kind of study and, and the difference there in, in just how uh, people learning, learning the information and somebody really taking the time to, to understand it, not just try to get the facts. Um, over time, I mean, that's going to lead to a, a huge difference in, in intellect and, and understanding of, of concepts. Uh, but yeah, kind of made me think about that, that side of it too. So my next, my next quote, in the end, mastery involves discovering the most resonant information and integrating it so deeply and fully it disappears and allows us to fly free. And he talks a lot about that in this book of, uh, he, he talks about the, uh, it's like learning to, do you remember what, what the, the phrase was? It's like, uh, it was in the intro here, numbers to leave numbers and form to leave form. So it's like at the beginning, you've, you've got to learn the numbers, uh, and he's talking about chess in that example, you, you learn the numbers, but then in the end, you, you're not, the numbers being like the basics of, of any given field. And, and in that case, chess. So you, you've got to learn the basics. You've got to learn the fundamentals, but the point and the goal of learning those is that they become part of your unconscious and part, you, you don't even think about it anymore, but it, it's still there. Well, it's 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 learning to train your intuition, which is something that a lot of people don't like. People a lot of times, and he 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 uh, rejects this idea, but they they mystify or they they make a a mystical kind of uh, they take a mystical kind of approach to the notion of intuition. Like, mm-hmm. well, you know, you either got it or you don't. You know, it's innate. You know, you got you know some people are just born with great intuition, and he goes. 
you know, actually, I've found that you can train intuition. And what happens is intuition is the result of having digested so much of the fundamental stuff that you stop actually consciously recognizing things and you much more quickly intuit them on the basis of stuff that you've already learned consciously. And I, I think that's a, a really nice insight. Yeah, because he talks about the the distinction between entity and incremental theories of intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Being a fixed entity, like you, you either have it or you don't, or you can increment incrementally grow in that intelligence. And it made me think to, to different parts of my life. And I have some parts where there, I, I really believe in the fixed entity to my detriment. And then there's other parts where I, I, I approach it from that, that incremental theory of intelligence. And so I, I think of my, uh, like the, the work that I do, I, I started uh, 12 years ago, I was scared to death of technology, websites, uh, anything to do with with computers. I, I, you know, I could maybe play games, but but the inner workings of things always really scared me. And and I had a professor that got me past that point. And then if I, I, I just went about learning incrementally these these concepts to where it didn't become. I wasn't fearful of it anymore. But then there's other things like uh, like running. And I, I, I've always been a, a decent runner, but to my detriment, I think that's hurt me in a lot of ways because I, I've, I've more viewed it as a fixed entity and I, I, I don't put, to, I don't put in the deliberate practice for running and, and I've discussed this in other podcast episodes. Part of that is I just, I just love running and, you know, sometimes it's just, going crazy and, and doing these crazy workouts that it, it takes us some of the enjoyment out of it. But I, I, I went back to thinking a lot about, about that during this book of just, um, the things that have been enjoyable to learn, uh, but also fearful and in, in how I view that as, as the incremental way. And then other, other things where it's more of that entity thing and, and you, you, you can just get stuck. I mean, for like the last five or so years, my time per mile in any race has not gone down. I've, I've done longer distances, but I've, I've not, I've not improved over that time. Uh, I've just, I've just maintained the same level. So I, I, I thought I, I like that quote, uh, getting, getting back to the, the quote that I did was here was just mastery involves discovering the most resonant information and integrating it so deeply and fully it disappears and allows us to fly free. Um, I, I thought I, I thought that was good, and and I took that also with uh, with violin in the past, where I spent a ton of. I mean, the first year of violin was not even actually touching the instrument, but touching fake instruments and learning how to stand. So, <laughs> and, and and he talked a lot about that that in this book with with uh, wax on, wax off, man. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to have the right balance and and all that. Um, but learning those things to where I don't even think about that anymore, but it's, it's an important part of, of playing the instrument, uh, all, all those basics and learning how to do vibrato for a full year before actually ever using it on the instrument, um, to where those things become, they disappear and then they just allow you to, uh, to, to focus on other parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a couple more here in the, uh, in, in my list. Um, 
I was unhindered by internal conflict, a state of being that I've come to see as fundamental to the learning process. And that gets a little bit to what you were just saying, right? That there, there are certain areas of your life where there's a little bit of in, internal conflict about something that then makes it harder to actually go whole hog into the learning process or the improvement process in the same way. And and I think all of us have, have areas in which we're going to have more conflict than others in areas where uh, we, we tend more towards uh, those things. But the thing, the thing that, that again sticks out is, is how we need to recognize those areas and that learning uh, and to consistently take that, uh, that uh, pro- uh, pro- progressive approach incremental approach is 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 going to be is going to be better better for us in terms of mental health and also in terms of performance uh the next one uh let's see confidence is critical for a great competitor but overconfidence is brittle we're too smart for ourselves in such moments and i like that because he he, he talks about like when we start to come to the point where some where we 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 reach that challenge and we're actually you know, it's the, the Mike Tyson thing. You know, everybody has a plan until he gets hit, right? The custom auto <laughs> thing, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody has that plan. But then all of a sudden you have to come to grips with, I just took a big, a big punch and, you know, I wasn't expecting to get hit. Well, now what do you do? And if you came in with overconfidence, now you're too smart, for, you're too smart to actually hold on to that confidence once you realize you're starting to lose. But if you come in with real confidence, it's it's it, that you can't win without it. So learning the difference is, is really important. Uh, hmm. One final uh, final quote for this series: uh, Great ones are willing to get burned time and again as they sharpen their swords in the fire. And this is one of the things that really stuck out to me about this book, and it stuck out about a number of books. I mean, we've talked about this in multiple episodes so far. Is how he emphasized. In, in, uh, he talks about it, you know, being willing to get thrown, but basically be, wi- being willing to fail. And and this is one of the things that uh, I, that really stuck out to me about how his parents handled him right early on as a, as a chess player. That initially they were really patient about getting him to be exposed to competitive situations and early exposure to that sort of thing. But then once he actually started playing against people his own age, and obviously he was dominant, they also started enrolling him in tournaments against adults who are better players than him in part so that he learned how to lose and that he lost his fear of losing, that it wasn't humiliating because I mean, I'm a kid. I just lost to an adult. Well, you know, and then he would be able to learn from the losing and then apply that. And so he lost his fear more or less. And it appears to be more or less for life. He lost his, his fear that so many people get, of failing and being humiliated by losing. Uh, and yeah, you know, he had some, some losses that really cut to the bone and he talks a lot about those in this book, but the importance of being able, being willing to lose. And, you know, as he says, says elsewhere, growth comes at the expense of previous comfort or safety. You've got to actually put yourself in a position to make mistakes in order to, in order to learn and in order to get better. And he talks about how that is, is critical uh, over and over and over again. You have to just constantly put yourself in the position of uh, of 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 losing, of of uh, of potentially getting embarrassed, in order to be able to take that apart and learn the lessons from it. And and that's one of the biggest obstacles. He says elsewhere that uh, that a number of the people that he started doing tai chi with 
the they were their growth was stunted because they were they they were more concerned about being correct than they were about learning. So when they would get feedback about, oh, you know, you should have done it this way, or why did you do this? This this would be better. They would defend themselves instead of just applying that and getting better. And he's saying, you know, worrying about being right as opposed to learning when you're wrong is actually stunting to growth and stunting to, to learning, which, again, that's that's that humility lesson we keep, keep coming across throughout the series. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love to be right, so I have, <laughs> well, I have a hard time with that one. We all love to be right, but yeah. at a certain yeah. point, I, I think the, the most important thing here is learn to hold rightness loosely so that yeah. it's more important to to learn than it is to be to have been right. So yeah. that that's I think the bigger thing. I, I I love being right. I care a lot less about having been right. I'd okay. rather not hold on to you know if I was wrong in the past and I hold on to it now, that's to my shame. Like that's mm-hmm. the really embarrassing thing. If I'm going yeah. down with the if I'm going down with the ship, that's just dumb. I could have gotten on a lifeboat. <laughs> Why not just take the freaking lifeboat? Well, and I like uh, I always like how you flip it around too with, with uh, how you describe when you're when you're giving a, a talk. You're going to be nervous if it's all about you and if it's all about you being right. But if it's all about trying to impart knowledge or Pursue get somebody to think together, a new way, yeah, yeah, then then it takes a lot of the pressure off you because it's not about you anymore. It's about it's about the truth or about getting getting the right message out there. And that's even true in competition, right? I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. even though, listen, I hate losing. I hate it. And I love winning. I, I hate losing a lot more than I love winning. But at the same point, it's about playing great. Not uh, not so much about the the, the outcome is, is, is secondary in that regard. It's, it's really about more than that. And if we, and it's not about me. It's about, the game, the game is bigger than me. The competition is bigger than me and learning, learning, you know, taking joy and doing it well, that's where it really is at. And if we get that, and he talks about that throughout, if we get that, then we're actually going to be more successful. That's the paradox of this. So anyway, next quote. One of the most critical factors in the transition to becoming a conscious high performer is the degree to which your relationship to your pursuit stays in harmony with your unique disposition. Yeah, you're going to have to unpack that one because that one's a good one, but it's, it needs to be unpacked. Well, and, and again, I just finished uh, the, the Art of, no, The War of Art <laughs> by Stephen Pressfield. And he, he has this great, great quote in there where he says, you can't be anything you want. <laughs> and he's because he's, he's highlighting like every parent says you can be anything you want to be you can you can do whatever you want and he says no you can't you have a unique disposition and you need to, you need to find out what that is and and pursue it and so th- this yeah this I can't along be those you lines. you can't yeah. be me I can't be whatever I want if what I want to be is is Michael Jordan yeah I can't be Michael Jordan <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I'll, I'll read it one more time. One, one of the most critical factors in the transition to becoming a conscious high performer is the degree to which your relationship to your pursuit stays in harmony with your unique disposition. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that, was a, that was one that just narrowly didn't make the cut for me. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I like that one, that one a lot as well. Well, and the funny thing, too, is, is, is I look through yours. I mean, I, 
I, I only have four that I've got in the notes here, but most of the ones that you have, I have a star by, which as I said <laughs> in the last episode, a star means that I thought it was just excellent. Yeah. And I, I underlined so much. And then at the end of each chapter, I, I, I wrote so many notes about each chapter. I mean, it was, it was just an excellent, excellent book. Yeah. I, I, I like this one too. So, uh, this one goes together with, he was talking about how his parents, uh, were careful to keep him from competing too early and, and so that, you know, he wouldn't be outcome focused all the time and that he, he, he would, you know, his love for chess wouldn't, wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be, you know, more a, a love of winning or whatever, uh, which can stunt growth and all that. But, uh, then he talks about how, well, you know, a lot of people have, have taken the argument that, you know, then, well, we shouldn't let kids experience, you know, we shouldn't keep score. And he says, mm-hmm. uh, I don't really agree with that one. And here's where he goes with that. He says, too much sheltering from results can be stunting. The road to success is not easy or else everyone would be the greatest at what they do. We need to be psychologically prepared to face the unavoidable challenges along our way. And I, I, I love that because, again, he, he wants to say we shouldn't overemphasize the score, especially at young ages. It's important that, you know, when when you lose and you're gonna lose at different points and when you fail that you learn to pick yourself up and do it but that means you need to actually keep score so that the kids can learn to fail and they can actually learn from something and and i loved how he talked about like listen you got a smart kid and then the kid's gonna lose and then you're gonna tell the kid oh like no it doesn't matter it's okay it's he's like no no it's not okay yes it does matter otherwise you wouldn't have kept score like you can hear him kind of like the disgust coming through the page where he's like the kid's too smart for that. And the, you're going to lose the kid's respect and the kid's going to going to get all like things are not going to make sense. The kid's too smart for that. The kid knows that it does matter. But then the thing is, what you do is you learn to you give the kid a hug, you grieve over the loss, and then you learn to unpack the emotion of the moment with the kid. And, and it's a great section of this book. We're saying like parents learn to unpack that emotion. Coaches learn to unpack that emotion with your kid so that the kid is processing like, okay, well, what went wrong? And not like in the X's and O's or in like the, you know, the actual tactics aspect, but like, where were you emotionally and all this? And that helps you become a a more complete and more in charge of your emotions person in in, overall. And I, I loved that section where he talked about, you know, yeah, keep score, but here's how you handle it when the kid loses or when you lose. And I, 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 well, I thought that was great. Yeah. And on the flip side, he, he talks about, I mean, there's, there's such young kids that he, he's talking about, you know, in these, in these chess tournaments and, and when some of these kids would lose and, and uh, the, describe what the, would giving them these, these terrible looks. And it's like, these kids are going through enough, in their own heads, knowing that they lost and, and having given, given everything and, and lost. And then, and then instead of having parents that knew how to deal with that, the, the father would just give the kid this, this death stare, uh, really, really devastating too to, to see that, that side of it. Yeah. And it's, it's tragic, you know, that kind of stage parent or, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, these, these, dads who coach their sons from a young age and really emphasize the winning and losing part rather than letting their kid really be the one to, to, to push it. And again, this is where I think my parents did a really good job with that. I mean, my dad never pushed me to do anything that I didn't really have the fire in me to do. 
But once I chose that I was going to do it, he helped me do it to the best of, of his ability to, to, to coach or encourage that. So, and you know, my mom, the same way. And that, that's what he really, that's what Waitzkin says is, is, is the way to go about this. And it's really sad. It's stunting. And it's, you know, it's, it's terrible for kids where the parents are actually living vicariously through the kid mm-hmm. and the kid's failures are the parents' failures. And that, 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 that doesn't help anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to hit a few more years before <laughs> I go in my last one? So. Yeah. Uh, okay. A couple others. Um, so he it, here's one uh, where he was he was learning how to cope with with uh, with distractions and so on. He said he said I realized that in top rank competition, I couldn't count on the world being silent. So my only option was to become at peace with the noise. And a lot of the, this book is about that becoming at peace with the noise and learning how to be flexible in your process so that you can actually be successful when things don't go exactly the way that you expect them to, because they're not. And and he had had a a Bon Jovi song stuck in his head (laughs) on one of the days of competition, but he used it to his advantage. He, he, the, the beat was in his head. So he, he used, he would think along with the beat. Yeah. And I thought that was a really cool chapter, you know, instead of letting this song get to him, he, he he used what was in his head to to reframe how he thought about the that given problem. Yep, and and again, that's finding it, one of the other things that he talks about a lot in this is learning ways to use your weaknesses to become strengths, mm-hmm. and 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 thinking through those things uh, was was is a good one. And well, along and, and with we, this, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Along with this was the other quote uh, that you know he had a there was a kid that was uh, regularly cheating. Uh, against him and he said you know one of the issues that would happen that would undo this kid's opponents I mean his kid was a strong player and he says but once this would happen opponents felt helpless and wronged they took on the mentality of the victim and so half the battle was already lost and that's one of the other things that he that he gets to is no matter what happens externally you can't allow yourself to play the victim because as soon as you play the victim it's over you have to you have to take the perspective of some of an overcomer rather than a victim and just just deal with it and otherwise you you, ha- you have no chance of being of being successful long term and, and it makes me think of another part in the book too where where it really tied in with the our third book i think uh, the 22 immutable laws where in that book they talk about if you're the underdog you fight against that the top company's strength you don't look for their weakness. You you fight against their their strength. So Coca Cola might be the Coca Cola is the the drink for the older generation or something. And so Pepsi, they'll fight against that strength and they'll be the drink for the younger generation. So, something to that effect. And he he talked about that exact thing with with fighters. He he would go against a fighter and that fighter was so good. He said I I can't look for their weakness. I have to fight against their strength and it's a really unique way to to think about something because you're 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 usually trying to look for an advantage uh but what if you can rephrase that rethink that to 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 go against their strength somehow just kind of a a cool thing i think a lot of times if you know somebody's really good at something you're not even going to try to 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 battle them in that area uh but with his line of thinking he he will he would try to do that Yep. Yep. So then uh, one, one last one bef- from me before you get yours, uh, your next one. Mental resilience is arguably the most critical trait of a world-class performer, and it should be nurtured 
continuously. Find ways to make yourself uncomfortable. Find ways to get yourself out of your comfort zone whenever you're in training, whenever you're at different points in order to to train this mental resilience that's so important if you're going to be a world-class performer. Well, Ferris talks a lot about that in his podcast where he'll go into a coffee shop and and he'll either lay down on the ground for 30 seconds and not say anything, not preface it, and then just get up and act like normal. Or he'll, (laughs) he'll, wherever he is, he'll ask for a a 10% discount. And so it's just that idea of, of, of doing things that are, that are uncomfortable. The other thing I hear him talk a lot about in his episodes is he references weight skin and he talks about how he learned the, the ins and outs of chess and it wasn't starting from scratch. It would be from the end game End game. So like king three pieces on the board. King. Yeah. And, and, and going from there and then working your, your way back. And I've, Ferris has probably talked about that 20 times in different podcasts, podcast episodes at least. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I know he always comes back to that and, and it is a cool way of, of thinking about learning something new and not just trying to learn it how everyone else does, but maybe taking it from that side of, of starting with three pieces instead of the full board and, and, and going from there. Yep. So my last quote is soon enough learning becomes unlearning. And I put this one in here because I feel like uh, this whole this year's project of the the 52 books has been this for me in a lot in a lot of ways, especially with my with background in in business education, uh, undergrad and grad degrees in business. I feel like I've had, I've, I've had to unlearn a lot of what I learned in in school in, in what we've learned this year, uh, which is which is always a good thing, but. Um, Soon enough, learning becomes unlearning. Yep. Okay, so then uh, final couple from me, final three. We have to be able to do something slowly before we can have any hope of doing it correctly with speed. I love that quote. Not much to say about it. I mean, it's, it's just true. You have to learn to do something slowly and under control and really get the movements down or whatever. If it's a physical thing, get it that way. If it's a mental thing, you have to be able to do it slowly before you can do it with speed. And I think people often transition way too fast to trying to do something quickly to do it like an expert when doing it correctly and spending a lot more time doing it like a beginner actually ends up getting you a lot further along as you become an expert because, again, you've ingrained it much more and it becomes more second nature, more intuitive. Yeah. My, uh, (laughs) the fast parts of, of any song for violin were prefaced with months and months of playing that fast part painfully slowly (laughs) for a long period of time. And then, and then you would get to that point, not, not trying to do it right away that fast, but man, just like super slow playing that, that part on the violin. And then, and then finally getting to the point where it was, you could do it fast. Yeah. All right. Then uh, not only do we have to be good at waiting, we have to love it. Because waiting is not waiting, it is life. Too many of us live without fully engaging our minds, waiting for that moment when our real lives begin. When in fact, the real life has been underway. And all of us, and, and, And because we're so bored and so impatient with waiting, we're letting life pass us by. And he says, you got to learn to be good at waiting and learn to love the process of waiting and 
just the process in general before in order to to succeed and and really to be awake through life love that and finally my final quote here yeah tactics come easy once principles are in the blood and again relating to the the, the same thing above you have to you have to focus so much on the principles and learn the principles and focus on the fundamentals and get all of that down to where it is second nature and then all of a sudden tactics come easy because well the principles are in the blood you you don't even have to think about the principles anymore because you've ingrained them they're written on the heart baby so yeah that's uh, I love that so we're now about halfway through uh and we're just finishing discussion of the quotes so we're just going to go ahead and transition into more big picture uh uh discussion of some of the principles throughout this book which we're not going to even scratch the surface of again you, listener you should read this book yeah there were there was one part of this book that just absolutely blew me away and that that was when he was talking about tai chi and it, this ties in with the second to last quote you just did about uh, or third to last where you having to do something slowly before you have any hope of doing it with speed. He would practice to attack somebody while they were blinking. All right. So just, just blink really quickly in that amount of time, he would have an opponent on the floor. Uh, so blinking some, uh, uh unconscious type of, uh, you know, you can somewhat control it, but, but, a lot of times you, you can't, and so his opponent would blink, and he would attack while they're blinking. I mean, that, that blew me away. I, I, I didn't find that to be especially especially surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, yeah, I, I can see that. It sounds right. Because, um, I mean, but it's... think of all that's involved in taking somebody down. Not much. I mean, Apparently, it takes you, it takes a, a blink of an it, eye. Yeah, it takes a while, to, a lot longer to blink than you think, because there is you can start to to focus on just the little the little uh, micro muscle uh, movements in the eye before someone actually blinks, and and you'll know. And the amount of time that it takes is just just enough to get weight shifted. So yeah, that that, that struck me as fine. I mean, it, it reminded me in some cases of, of some of the stuff that I used to do, and some some of the stuff that I train some of some of the kids I work with to do. I mean, one of the reasons I got so many steals in basketball, I mean, I, I, I used to have a lot of steals as a basketball player, is I learned to attack when the ball hit the hand of the guy. So as hmm. soon as the ball would, so I would, I would start to time, you know, I, over, over the course of games, I would learn that a guy had a, you know, everybody has sort of a cadence to their normal dribble. And generally speaking, people get a little bit careless after you, you haven't ripped their pocket for a while. And what'll hap- what would happen is I would sink that, and as soon as it would leave their fingertips, I would already be attacking. And I think a lot of people who you know will reach in and try to try to steal steal a ball in a one on one situation, they end up going too late. But what you have to do is you have to sink it so that as soon as it leaves the hand, you're going to have the time between it leaving the hand, it hitting the hitting the floor, and then coming up. You can actually steal the ball on the way up. Hmm. And most people actually wind up trying to steal it on the way down. They'll, they'll, they'll see the ball hit the floor and they'll do it on the way, uh, on the way, on the way down. And it's too late. It's too late. Yeah. But you, but you hit it the other way. You learn to sink that and it's a a microsecond difference, but it makes a huge difference 
in that or you know wide receivers i train wide receivers because i learned to do this uh when you're playing up against a a, a cornerback a defensive back in 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 american football you're in a one-on-one situation and a lot of times the defensive back is defending you trying to keep you from catching the ball and he has his back turned to where the ball is coming from because you're both running away from where the throw was 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 made and so what defensive backs learn to do is they learn to watch the eyes and the hands of the wide receiver so that when the eyes widen, the defensive back intuitively learns that receiver's eyes just widen just a little bit as they focus on the ball coming. Yeah. And then what, you're, what the defensive back does is that the defensive back learns then to close the ground and then wait for the hands to shoot up. And then you punch through the hands as the ball hits the hands. Well, as a receiver, you learn this, and I learned to widen my eyes early in or a little bit early in the route so that defensive backs would oftentimes they'd be in good enough position that they'd turn to look for the ball. And in, in fact, the ball wasn't anywhere near on its way, and I, I'd be catching the ball 10 yards down the field further from where they turned and looked, and they lost a step or two by looking because they, they were looking for a ball that wasn't there. And so you learn to, 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 and it's just the subtlest, like you, you, you just widen your eyes just slightly, or you, you make a subtle move with your hands and they shoot their hands and it's too late. And then you shoot your hands and, or it's too early. And then, then you put your hands out and it's little games like this. Anytime you get good at this stuff and you, you become proficient in the fundamentals, you can start to do those little things that. I mean, anybody who watches NFL or, you know, uh, high level college football, the best wide receivers are doing this stuff because they've mastered those fundamentals. And now there's just a little bit about where you lean in a route or how you put the weight on a defensive back in this that can create so much space or just where you look or whether your eyes widen, you know, one one millimeter makes a difference on whether it's a touchdown or not. And, yeah. you know, training guys to do that stuff is fun because, you know, they realize like, oh, my gosh, like I'd never even thought of that. And yeah. you're like, no, the defensive backs like they, they all know. And some of these guys have played both. It's like, well, you know, when a guy looks like this, he's, he's turning to look for the ball. Right. Well, yeah. Well, why don't you do it when the ball's not coming? <laughs> oh, man, that is sneaky. Exactly. Right. So it's exactly the sort of thing he's talking about. You learn to read little micro adjustments. Uh, and the same thing again with defensive backs. You learn to read, you know, that his foot is hitting the ground right at this moment on film. And if if you happen to lean this way, he's going to do that. And now you can you can cut back. Everything happens so quickly. But at the same point, you can slow it down if you're used to doing it and you've done it thousands of hours. Yeah. And again, yeah, this I, is I, the I unconscious I, versus conscious thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I... I I guess I hadn't I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way, and and so it, it stuck out to me that somebody would have that <laughs> presence of mind while they're about to get their butt kicked or kick someone's butt to to be able to to kind of get rid of all that and, and to be able to just focus on someone's eyes. And he he said he said it would blow people away that he was fighting because they they wouldn't know what happened. Yeah, they'd think it was some sort of mystical of thing because they'd the, never see it yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> Because they're blaming. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One, uh, one other. I don't, and we discussed this a lot in our, our quotes, but just again that, uh, and this has come up in, in a lot of the books we've read this year. But the conscious versus unconscious uh, learning, and 
he, he described intuition as the connection between the conscious and the unconscious. And I thought that was a, a cool way to think about that. But with the unconscious of getting, getting things to the point of the unconscious can come through practice and training. And you, I guess you may not even understand where that intuition comes from because it's so deeply ingrained with you. But I liked how he described that of, of, um, of intuition being that connection between the, between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that I, I, I really liked about that approach is again, it gives you a way of training your intuition consciously mm-hmm. to consciously feed the unconscious so that yeah. your unconscious is more reliable. And that, well, that's really the, you know, that's the, that's the, um, you know, the white whale, that's the, the, um, the, 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 the thing that we're all, really looking for in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, that's the thing that gives you that edge. Cause you can react so much quicker and you can, you don't even know why you're doing the right thing, but you, but you're doing it. Uh, yeah. And you know, again, this gets to the ability then what, what that allows you to do is to, to focus in once you, once your intuition is trained, you're conscious, you, you can consciously focus in on the very smallest details and feel like time is slower and work your way into that, into that zone because all that other stuff is, is being taken care of unconsciously. Uh, and you know, this is where as a coach, you know, you tell players a lot, uh, see a little, see a lot, see a lot, see nothing. Hmm. And the principle is precisely this. When you're trying to spread your attention, you don't really see anything that's going on. But if you learn to take all that in unconsciously and you've trained the details to get the details right enough, then you can focus in on that one little thing. That's really the, the place where the, the battles won or lost. And if you focus on that, you're going to see everything. And, and he, he, yeah. he, he breaks he, that he, down so well. When he quotes it, quotes it, what you just said by saying the idea is to shift the primary role from the conscious to the unconscious without blissing out and losing the precision the conscious can provide yeah that's it's a great quote yeah, that's another one like, that could have gone in my favorites like yeah, yeah. And, and, and again it's all about getting those fundamentals so ingrained that they're second nature so you no longer need to be conscious of that stuff in the heat of the moment you spend 10,000 mm-hmm. hours of deliberate practice working on that li- on, on your fingering and your bow technique going painfully slow on something for a year and then all of a sudden you can quicken that up and it's second nature and now you can actually think about you know adding flourishes to it and be and, and do different things with it that you could never have done if you mm-hmm. hadn't ingrained the proper patterns mm-hmm. so I, I i again i love that approach of and 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 what this again gets to is we've got this de-emphasis in our current educational system particularly at the primary level where oh you know memorization you know we shouldn't do memorization we shouldn't do and if you read if you if you read this book, you find out that that's that might not be a good idea. You know, actually, if you really want to get to the place where you can overcome memorization, the need for memorization, you have to memorize and you have to ingrain and you have to do stuff that is the rote stuff in order to get to where you can actually reliably do without the rote stuff. You can't circumvent the one without the other to a large degree. And we've tried to do that. And I think part of that gets to something else that he talked about when he wrote his first chess book. He talks about the uh, the expert-beginner divide. And he says, the problem is that if you want to write an instructional chess book for beginners, you have to dig up all the stuff that's buried in your unconscious. 
I had this issue when I wrote my first book, Attacking Chess. In order to write for beginners, I had to break down my chess knowledge incrementally, whereas for years I've been cultivating a seamless integration of critical information. So, yeah, here's the thing. Once you become an expert, you realize like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't I don't even look at the periodic table anymore. And, you know, I, I don't I what's the point of memorizing, you know, that or this or that? Well, you know, it doesn't make any difference. Once you're an expert, you don't need that. Yeah. But do you remember as an expert? what you needed to do to become an expert so that that stuff's second nature. Yeah, you needed to memorize it to begin with. You needed to actually start with the numbers to leave the numbers. You paint by the numbers mm -hmm. first. Eventually, you don't need the numbers. You work on, you, you master the flow so that now you can, you don't have to worry about, uh, or master the form so that now you, you're, you're, you're free of the form to a large degree. And I think this is a big reason why that, you know, there's that old saying, those who can't do teach. And then often there's the, the corollary, those who can teach often can't or don't do. And it's because well, the, the, the people who become experts, the people who do actually lose their ability to connect to what got them there. And then a lot of times those are the people that we now have saying, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't memorize. We shouldn't have kids memorize or whatever. Oh, come on. Well, and, and you had pointed out in another episode that uh, it, it does take a unique person to be able to to be able to teach once you have reached that level, because it, you, you have to be conscious of those those inc those starting points. Yeah, you have and to remember what it was like not to know what you know. Yeah, almost that <laughs> C.S. Lewis thing, uh, quote of a fifth grader is probably going to be able to teach a fourth grader better than a than an adult would be able to. Yeah. But, yeah. So, you know, I loved, again, that particular approach where you, you, you learn to recognize that distinction. You learn to incrementally break that stuff down and you work out from getting the fundamentals perfect. And then once the fundamentals are perfect, you can flow. But trying mm -hmm. to circumvent it without the fundamentals, you're just never going to be good. You're well, you might be mm -hmm. you might get good, but you're never going to be great. And you're never going to be yeah. among the best. Uh, one one thing that I thought was really cool in the book is all this talk about the con conscious for the versus the unconscious and 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 working between the two and, and training so that it, things go to your unconscious. He then talked about ways to to take advantage of that, <laughs> and uh, he talked about magic in card yeah. tricks. In card tricks, a lot of these tricks play on your unconscious, like uh, the the magician will will flip a card and without you even knowing that he just flipped a card and showed you a card and that that goes into your unconscious and then when he says i want you to think of a card you 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 think of that one because He's you already just saw it you. and you, you didn't you didn't even know you saw it so uh, i thought that, i thought that was cool it was it wasn't just one side of it it was like you know and here here's also some ways you could maybe use that to to your advantage uh so that was a cool part of the book yeah yeah, and there were a lot of again, there were a lot of those little things peppered throughout here. And I was I was you know, I'm not easy to impress in this regard, uh, but mm -hmm. I was impressed by the degree to which he is a polymath in terms of the, the his his wide wide range of interests. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a guy who you know, he he he's reached uh um, you know, he was among the best for a long time at, at chess, which doesn't leave you normally a guy that's going to going to reference uh, say Jim Harbaugh in the NFL coherently, 
It, like, stereotypically, that's not what you expect. And then you don't expect, like, a combat sport guy to be referencing, like, esoteric uh, aspects of chess preparation. And, again, it's it's bridging all those divides and the way that he does that. There's something there for just about anybody reading this book to be able to go, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about there. And mm-hmm. to connect with that. I, and and, and I, I was very impressed by the way that, you know, again, people who like magic or whatever, illusionists, all of that stuff. That He's got so many good ways of connecting and shoehorning ideas in that are going to connect with people throughout this book. Hey, quick, quick tangent here. I, I, maybe you remember who, what episode this was in, but it was one of the fairest episodes. I can't remember if it was, was, uh, his interview of Josh Waitzkin or, or if it was someone who's a good friend of his, but they talked about the person that had the best long game ever for chess. Do you remember? I think, I think he was talking about Bobby Fisher because he, he talked about one chess player who did the same exact first move every single yeah it was it was Bobby Fisher uh, who uh, prior to the uh, to the world championship match against Spassky yeah and so in, in the, was it against the Russian yeah Spassky's Russian yeah Boris okay. Spassky so he had done that same first move for like 20 years and then once he played Spassky he did a different first move and it completely threw the guy off and he, and and the, in in the Ferris interview, he said that that has to have been the best long game play ever. Yeah, well, and, and again, it, this this all goes to the e four versus d four. Uh, the, the, these are the moves that the, that we're talking about, and the, the most the two most common white openings uh, in uh, uh, in in chess. He uh, he basically um, uh, he 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 went with one of those throughout his career, and then. All of a sudden, uh, shifted uh, in in the uh, uh, in the um, in in the uh, in, in the in the world championships, as I recall. And I'm trying to remember who that was uh, in that podcast because that he was he was actually someone who went and was with Fisher against or, or with Fisher in the preparation for that. Uh, yeah, you know, he was one of the people in Fisher's camp that Fisher kind of let in at the time. Yeah, so, I mean, I I'm trying I to remember to who that, that is. Who that is. Hang on, but that's good, and we'll find it and we'll put it in the show notes because that was a uh, that was an excellent episode. <laughs> but it was so cool. I mean, can you imagine waiting to to your most important match and then completely throwing the guy because you you know that guy knows what you're gonna do for the first play and then you do something different. I, I thought that was awesome. So yeah, we'll find that and put it in the the show notes. One other uh, thing I, I, I liked was uh, a connection to a book we just covered, Deep Survival, where Josh says, I learned at sea that virtually all situations can be handled as long as presence of mind is maintained. On the other hand, if you lose your calm when crisis hits 70 miles from land or while swimming with big sharks, there is no safety net to catch you. And we we discussed that and... and uh, the importance of, of being able to, to maintain your presence of mind when these, these situations happen. And actually I, I found the episode that was the, uh, that was the episode with Adam Robinson, uh, the, the Ferris uh, podcast with Adam Robinson. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that one's, that one, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, uh, about you know, that, uh, about Fisher completely going with a totally different, uh, 
uh, opening than anything that, uh, that had been prepared for. He's a good guy to follow on Twitter too. Adam Robinson. Robinson. Yeah, he's a very yeah. bright guy. Yeah. Uh, we saw that uh, the the last thing I discussed with the the deep survival connection. We I saw that a lot in this book, where it was like some of the big lessons in in some of the other books we've read this year for the Books of Titans list. He, he would just kind of talk about it in, in passing, but, but it was just funny because it would be a main lesson from one of these other books and, and he, he would hit on it in, in a memorable way too with a, with a story or, or something. So we, we talked about that with Once an Eagle too, where we said, you could probably skip a lot of the books we read and just read, just read Once an Eagle because so many of the lessons that we learned in the other books were in that. I, I felt the same way about this book where it's like a lot of the things that we saw, whether it was 22 Laws, Born Standing Up, Deep Survival, uh, just so many of the books I had, uh, he, he talked about very, very similar parts to to those books. So again, read this book is, is a good one. Yeah. So actually, and I'm, I'm double, I was double checking as well uh, what, what Fisher actually played. This is specifically a reference to... Uh, uh, so Fisher had always been an E4 pawn player. That, that's one of the things Fisher always argued that the e, e pawn for those, sorry for a little bit of inside chess here, uh, for those chess players, uh, E4 is one of the two, non-chess players, E4 is one of the central two uh, pawns. But uh, Fisher was always a proponent of the E pawn as superior. He didn't play an, uh, an E pawn opening until game seven of the, uh, of the uh, world championships against uh, Spassky. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he played... Uh, C4, for example, which is not even a central pawn opening uh, as his opening in game six, uh, which he won uh, for only the third time he'd ever used it in a serious game. I mean, he'd, he'd been an e-pawn player his whole career. So, you know, he did this over and over and over again, and he didn't play his usual e-pawn opening until game seven. So, that's yeah, awesome. that's <laughs> pretty hilarious. So, awesome. um yeah, other uh, other things here. Uh, any uh, any other stuff before we head to the uh, conclusion? Let's no, see. I'm good. Okay, yeah, a couple other things. Uh, one other thing for me, um, I, I liked his pedagogical lessons. He was uh, his. You could tell he he really loved his his first chess teacher, Bruce Pandolfini. Who actually, I've read some stuff by Pandolfini and, and is very readable. Uh, and he 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 made this comment about. Uh, he had to teach me to be more disciplined as a chess player without dampening my love for chess or suppressing my natural voice. Many teachers have no feel for this balance and try to force their students into cookie cutter molds. And you can see at different points through the, through this uh, book that he's got so much disgust for people, for teachers who take that approach hmm. that, you know, there's no one size fits all approach to the right way to do certain things like chess or, you know, Tai Chi or whatever, that, but there are fundamentals you have to learn to be disciplined, not so that you get wooden and that's the only way to do this, but so that you can learn to you can learn the form to leave the form. And and again, over and over again, he emphasizes uh, that point. And and Pandolfini he 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 talks about as really having gotten that. Uh, yeah. So other than that, um, I think uh, I think I'm ready to move into the uh, our big picture, our conclusions here. Yeah. 
I uh, I loved it. It was it was a great book. Very very helpful. Uh, and and like I said before, it's kind of like Once an Eagle, where <laughs> you you could skip a lot of the other books that we've read, even even though they were excellent, and you could just read Once an Eagle and get a lot of those yeah. same lessons. Uh, same thing with this book. You you could skip a lot of uh, a lot of the other books we read and 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 get a lot of the lessons from this book. So I I'd recommend it. It's also one of the I, easiest reads. Yeah, it was very easy to read. One of the most valuable things, one of the most valuable things we've read, and one of the easiest reads. Yeah, and and I, I loved what you said at the beginning, Jason, of of even considering gifting this book to a child, uh, a, a relative, a, a nephew, or or someone in in your family, uh, even even your own child, uh, uh, if they're six years old or older, that I think they could get a lot out of this book. So it's not just you don't have to be in your twenties or thirties or or on to, to read this, but, uh, it's, it's, I'd say by the time a kid's eight or nine, they should read this book. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what, what's your main, main takeaway? Well, I mean, first of all, I completely agree with you that, that this is one of those books, you know, if I have to choose, you know, four or five from the ones that we've covered so far, this is, this is one of them, uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, read this one first, uh, along with once an Eagle and a couple others, uh, you know, I, I'd probably have the effective executive on that list and a couple others as well. But, um, but yeah, there, there, there were just a lot of key lessons throughout. Uh, and actually, I, I think uh, here would be a good place to summarize some of those. He, he puts some things down as core principles, and they're kind of sprinkled through the book. And I thought it'd be useful to, to put these kind of together uh, here at the end where he talks about, uh, first of all, core principles of learning. And this happens on, on page 225 of the paperback uh, edition. Uh, but he talks about that these are core principles of learning. So, you know, principle one was end game before opening, which means you start with the small, with the little reduced complexity situations that can then be built into larger building blocks that make sense of the, of the more complex problems that you're going to deal with in life, in competition, or whatever else you're dealing with. So start by breaking things down to the reduced complexity stuff and, and work on mastering that stuff first so that you can get the, 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 the conceptual stuff, the intuitive stuff in the blood earlier. And then the next principle, this is principle two, making smaller circles. So... What you do is you take one single technique or idea and you practice it until you can feel its essence and you're just narrowing in and zeroing in on the bullseye of that particular essence that is that that is found in that one little technique. And 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 once you've mastered that one little thing and you practice it until you can feel it in your blood and you no longer have to actually think about it then you can move on to something else and you can build out from that. And now you're building a powerful arsenal, he says. Third thing, slowing down time. So you focus on a select group of techniques with which you make those smaller circles and you try to internalize those until the mind unconsciously can perceive them in tremendous detail, which allows you then to focus on little tiny things. And because you're able to focus so much more and all that other stuff is, is, is unconscious, you're able to get into that flow state where it feels like things slow down. Then fourth, the illusion of the mystical. Use the cultivation of the last two principles of making smaller circles and slowing down time to control the intention of the opponent. This is where you become a master. 
Now you're no now you're no longer just dealing with working out the form to find your own thing. You're now using your mastery to manipulate your opponent who has to spread you know its conscious focus much more and completely oblivious and now you're now you can start to to work your opponent rather than working only on yourself it's and it's only once you've mastered yourself in this stuff that you can even worry about your opponent which i think is a nice a nice principle so that that's core principles of learning and competing uh and then the second group of of things is he's got the core principles for finding the flow state and and he wants this he wants to make sure that you understand this as a soft flow so that you're not hardened to you know that you have to get rigid about this but that this is a flow state where you can really you can blow with the wind to some degree but you're you're still rooted uh number one is stress and recovery he really emphasizes approaching things in interval fashion not just exercise but everything and and he he makes this point players who are able to relax in brief moments of inactivity are almost always the ones who end up coming through when the game is on the line so you learn to to push really, really hard and, and, and to, 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 uh, emphasize getting it, you know, getting, getting everything, uh, down just right. And then you got to take a breath and a few breaths and step away and let your mind breathe and let your body breathe. Recovery is as important as the stress to getting better. And actually in some cases it's more important Then finally, the second principle for finding the flow is building your trigger. And so, and, and I, I loved his principle here. And this is something it took me a long time to get. And it was actually after my competitive career had ended that I, I, I figured it out myself that uh, in terms of how to reach a flow state. And I learned, you know, I, I, it was only after my competitive career that I, I could, I learned I could, I could kind of flip the switch. I learned how to flip the switch and suddenly hit that flow state to be able to do stuff competitively that I couldn't do when I was actually competing at, you know, at, at the level that I really wanted to. And, I, and it, it finally got to the place where, oh, now I understand, like, the difference between, say, NBA players as shooters and, you know, a, a really good shooter in, say, high school is a really good shooter in high school hits that zone where they can, they're going to be able to hit four or five shots, you know, four or five three-pointers in a row or something like that. Your, your, your good NBA shooters, they live in that zone. They've learned how to get to that zone every night. And, you know, it's rare that they're not there. And I loved how he he talked about this of the right approach for this is that you figure out how you think you, you find the find times when you've actually gotten to that state. And then you work backwards from that and you create the trigger that's going to more reliably be able to to get you to that state. And eventually you try to to pare that trigger down to where it's really not complex and it's just something that you can mentally get into that state really quickly and and again his process for this very much jives with what it took me years to figure out and like i said it happened after my competitive career but super useful and he's right and uh and that stuff is worth worth the read on its own and i i i thought a lot when he was talking about that flow flow state i thought a lot about just everyday work too so I, that's the powerful thing about this book. It, it's not just about when you're doing Tai Chi and fighting some um, amazing opponent or in, in this heated chess battle, but it's, it's everyday work. It's how can you get into that flow and in, in, in what you just said, you know, 
when you know that you've been in the flow, taking a, a step back and, and looking how it worked backward and create create the trigger that got you there. I, I thought a lot about that when I was reading this book. So not not even just, you know, when 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 we're in the heat of competition or anything, but how, how can you just do better work every day? How can you try to reach a flow flow state in the work that you do? This book will help you a, a lot in that and in, in, in thinking of ways to get there. So. Yeah, I think that does it for us. I think that uh, does it. Yeah, today. So uh, real quick, I am working. I'm about halfway through. I'm putting up our list of 2018 books. So that will be up on the website soon. And uh, yeah, we're, uh, as as I've said in past episodes, we're each going to read 26 books that were suggested in uh, in Tim Ferriss podcast episodes. And then uh, I'm reading 26 other books that uh, are books that I've wanted to read. And, um, and so I'll be, doing, I'll be doing my share in addition as well. So I'll have a, a little bit of, of, of extra stuff up there as well, but we'll each be doing 26 for the podcast. Yeah. And, and, and so next year, the, the, I mean, we still have a lot of books to cover from this year. And then uh, after that, the podcast will take more of the form of uh, interview of, of the person who has read the book. And then uh, we'll also, you know, briefly discuss the, the other books that are non- non um ferris recommended ferris podcast recommended books uh we'll we'll briefly discuss some of those as well uh, and and even as i posted some of this on on instagram it's it's funny a lot of people are uh, you know i'm curious to see the books that uh that are the ones that you chose instead of the ones that are um that are uh, the ferris podcast ones so before we get out of here just a quick reminder we are on BooksToTitans.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Books of Titans. Get all our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, the Android Marketplace, or, or any other podcast manager of your choice. Give us a review. We'd love that. Uh, next week, we'll be back dis- to discuss The Republic by Plato, one that uh, Jason has actually taught. <laughs> so that should be a... a yeah, I taught Plato. <laughs> yeah, he's a student of mine. <laughs> <laughs> A little slow, but uh, eventually, you know, kind of got things. He got the hanging things. <laughs> so on behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Rosthead, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep listening, keep improving, and keep reading. Keep it real. Yeah, I put those in the wrong order this time. Yeah. <laughs>